I want to begin by paying respects to my teacher and honoring my teacher, Saida Upandita, uh, and his teacher before him, who I ordained with, Mahasi Saida, his teacher before him, and all the teachers in the lineage back to the Buddha, as well as um, um, a new teacher in the last year and a half for me, uh, and Burmese nun, Da Yuzuna, who had both a, a similar, similar lineage with uh, the Mahasi Sairao's teacher, Mingun Jetawan Sairao, as well as another lineage, Moguk Sairao lineage. All the lineages, all interconnected, all the way back to the Buddha in this vast web of um, preservation and continuity of, of, uh, of transmission of the Dhamma, of the pure Dhamma. So as I said the other night, I open retreats, I begin retreats by paying my respects. Another lineage I want to start with respecting and paying um, homage to tonight, and it's uh, dads. Happy Father's Day to dads. And I'm going to share a card that I got from our daughter yesterday. For Father's Day, how would a shiny new Harley Davidson sound? <laughs> she says, Daddy, happy Father's Day. I almost got you a card that talked about how lucky I am to be your daughter, how you have re refined and polished me and shaped me into the woman I am today with love. And although all of this is true, the card didn't make this cool vroom vroom noise. <laughs> Big love. <laughs> it's actually um, a, a poignant uh, Big love from Chandra. Uh, Michelle and I have parented her as well as her other parents. She's now 28. And she went through a few really difficult years struggling with addiction. Uh, and she's given her permission to say whatever of her story that can be helpful at any time. You know, and it was love that, um, that carried her through, uh, and through treatment and through healing uh, back to college. and all A's this last year and uh, accepted to this great school in Boulder, Colorado, Naropa Institute, uh, where this Dhamma as we know it actually began in 1974 with the first teachers back from Asia, Joseph, Jack, Sharon. Uh, that was the first venue of, of teaching these retreats. It grew out of that.
it's hard journey is what we do, this, um, this inner work. And it's important to say that we must be really mindful of ever judging ourselves that we're being in any way selfish. It's the most generous and selfless act that we can do to, to open and allow the Dhamma into our hearts to bring out what lies there, uh, such as unconditional love, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity, wisdom, insight, and Nibbana, full liberation. Uh, like Chandra, you know, we all go through um, intense rapids of life, slog through swamps, climb cliffs, wipe out in big waves, and um, caravan across endlessly dry deserts at times. Uh, and it's hard. It's really hard work. This work, I think, without question for everyone, is the work of coming home, of finding our home in our hearts. Tonight I want to talk uh, in general about the Brahma Viharas, particularly metta. Uh, this is our practice this week. They are also known, as Michelle was saying last night, no, she, well, she didn't say it, uh, they're known as the immeasurables, the four immeasurables, because of their nature of having no measure. Uh, and the Buddha's simple instruction in the old Pali texts were to radiate this metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka in, in all directions in preparation then for uh, entering into insight and uh, seeing the nature of things as they are. We're all naturally drawn home, uh, an innate force, an innate and pure desire in us um, draws us to this home in the heart and to toward liberation. So much of our work as teachers is to, to encourage you to trust the process, to put out just the effort necessary to, you know, to kickstart. <laughs> and then it goes. It goes on its own. <laughs> and the, the Dhamma really works that way. Once the current uh, is engaged by our effort, our right energy, and balanced with um, uh, concentration, and compassion and non-judging awareness, then the elements of the Dhamma kind of pull together and it's as if we are riding the current of Dhamma effortlessly. It's doing itself. The Dhamma is just doing itself through our minds and body. So I want to talk about these immeasurables, the interconnectedness, uh, the nature of this practice of connection or connectedness that we call the Brahma Viharas. The, the nature of actions and consequences, how acts of metta 
have um, immeasurable and mysterious consequences that we may never even know about. I want to talk about a little more what Michelle was talking about last night, the, the, the breaking of the barriers, the, the internal barriers we self-create, and the barriers between ourselves and others, or between ourselves and life as it is. And if there's time, I want to talk about the uh, Brahma Viharas as the very foundation of our being and its power uh, to navigate us through life, to, to be the very nature of, our, of how we live, uh, its quality as enlightened leadership. Give an example of that. It's the power of patience, the, the opening and revealing of patterns in our life that obstruct the connection and interconnectedness with life, their release, how they reset, how we work with that. And the very powerful generation of energy from Brahma-Vihara practice that sustains both the practice of metta in our lives and is applied to awareness and insight. Uh, An uh, endless pool of energy that we can draw upon from this work. I was really inspired a year and a half ago. Michelle and I and uh, uh, Carol Wilson, a couple of teachers from Australia, teach a retreat in Upper Burma every January with Saidao Ulakana, uh, who's a revered meditation master in his late 60s now. He, was, he is a student also of Saidao Upandita's. And we teach side by side what we call a fusion retreat because it is the combination of uh, a very traditional transmission of classical teaching, a very contemporary presentation, interpretation, and accessibility through modern metaphor and relevancy in the way um, uh, Michelle and I present it and, and the teachers uh, who have helped us. This particular area is a heart center of the of this most ancient Theravada tradition of Buddhism. There's 700 plus monasteries and nunneries, 7,000 nuns and monks, um, and it's very living, palpable Dhamma energy there. It feels like uh, the scent of the Buddha still uh, wafts by as you walk through the hills. They're rolling hills, about 15 miles of them along the Irrawaddy River. So every, uh, every year we, we walk around and we meet many special nuns and monks. Many of them have passed away now. This one that we met a year and a half ago, uh, he just passed away uh, in, the, in the last year. He was nearly 100 years old. And 
he was blind now, and he could hardly hear. And so his attendant would have to yell in his ear to introduce us. He may as well had a cheerleader's megaphone because it was ear-piercing yelling in the ear, you know. This is Stephen Smith from Hawaii, you know. This is Jake Davis from Barry. And the lovely elderly monk would say, what? <laughs> and we'd go through a couple of rounds. And his way of connecting was with the hands. He'd motion us up, couldn't see us. But he'd see us with his hands. His hands were cool, as if just washed in a mountain stream. And yet they emanated. They unbelievable metta warmth. And his whole being was uh, so visibly pure, almost ethereal, as he just sat there, light emanating. Uh, it's hard to say how long we were there. It was certainly uh, probably hours, but it just it was so timeless. He listened with his hands. I don't remember, you know, much of what was spoken, except the very last words, which were blessings to us. He said simply, may you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be free from even one unskillful mind moment. It was such a pure and powerful blessing that washed through us. And one, one that we'll never forget. One that, you know, uh, an imprint that he would leave in the heart of one forever. And ignite even more that innate desire for home, for the heart of metta for liberation. Briefly going over what Michelle um, spoke of last night, a little more um, detail. Metta. Metta is a radiant uh, tenderness or warmth that is the heart revealed, you know, the heart without fear or anger, the heart without all its uh, uh, buffering, protective um, coverings, free of like and dislike. Metta is non-possessive love. It doesn't want anything or expect anything in return. It's a freely offered love, you put it out, don't know how, why, or if it will come back to you in any way. Wisdom, however, tells us that it clearly generates the momentum towards our own liberation and towards more light in the universe. Metta is a pervading sense of openness and oneness. His monk, 
nearly 100 years old, was pure metta, just particles of metta in the last months of his, of his life, unafraid of wherever he was to go or not go. And metta is the experience of kindness from others, tenderness, goodness that we feel from others. And opening to that, feeling people's unconditional love for us. Karuna, compassion, fearless presence in the face of suffering, beyond contraction that can often happen when we see, feel, experience pain, beyond control, you know, trying to manipulate or get rid of pain or suffering from a self-centered place, from a craving place. Care, compassion, very sensitive heart with the desire to alleviate suffering in any way we can with wisdom, with understanding. And it's the reciprocal feeling, feeling cared for. The presence of someone when we're in pain, when we're in suffering, who's just there caring. They don't need us to change. We know it's unconditional compassion when they're okay that we're suffering and they're just in an empathic attunement to our pain. And we don't feel uneasy because they're uneasy or because they're trying to fix us. And then, then we know that this person is being completely compassionate and it really feels good. Uh, fear goes away, you know, especially at a poignant moment, at someone's last moments of life. That kind of presence, it's a great gift. Mudita, unfettered, profound joy in being, just being. Passion for life, an appreciation of others' happiness accomplishments, joy in success. And it's the experience of others celebrating our own joy, happiness, and success without feeling that energy of comparing. You know, it's a sharing, mutual sharing of the joy. No envy, no... Um, Jealousy, these are known as the opposites, or the, the far enemies of, of mudita. Karuna, compassion, the far enemy is, I mentioned cruelty, uh, or I mentioned other forms of it, manipulation, control, you know, needing to fix or change. The opposite of compassion. Upeka, is equanimity, the non-reactive, balanced, serene presence in the midst of things as they are. Whatever's happening, it's just a wide mind able to hold the 
the vast range of pain and pleasure, joy and sorrow, suffering and happiness. We feel that way toward ourselves. We feel that way toward others. We feel that way towards life. All the uncertainty of life, all the unknowns, what we want may not happen. We don't want to happen, it may happen. Sometimes what we want happens. Sometimes what we want others to have, that happens. But whether it's the energy of success or the energy of disappointment, the mind is able to hold both without the attachment or without the rejection. Likewise, to feel this serene balance, this equanimity from others, is to feel seen, to feel recognized, understood, accepted, not judged from others, by others. Rather affirmed for our very innate goodness, our worthiness. Powerful to be in the presence of one in equanimity. And sometimes we mistake that for uh, such coolness that there's no caring, no sensitivity, no connection. But this actually is known as the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference. It looks like it. That's why it's called the near enemy. But it's a masquerade. Real equanimity. There's compassion. There's connection. There's sensitivity. In fact, the most intense kind of intimacy one can imagine, because there isn't attachment or aversion that limits, that squeezes, that narrows our experience of life as it really is. This is a favorite poem of Michelle's Hafiz, Hafiz, the Sufi poet. The sun never says, it's called, even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. Conditional love would say, hey, you owe me. (laughs) I love you, so give me. Or love me back. But even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. The text given an example of, this is Father's Day, of a parent, of a parent, uh, it usually says mother, but we'll say, I'll say dad tonight, and four children. The newborn baby, you know, how we feel towards that baby. The, Michelle was saying last night how the mother cow cares for the newborn calf. Just without thought, you know, without any idea of all, at all of this precious being. It's there. The mother cow licks and takes care of this precious being that just came out of her womb. You know, that's how one would feel.
towards a newborn baby, unconditional love. Another child may be ill, and in this case, the, the parent, the dad, uh, the response to it, you know, wouldn't be hating the suffering of the child or afraid of the suffering of the child. The response would be to cradle and care for, make the child feel loved, you know, even if it was a terrible illness of some sort. The parent with such compassion would love the child so unconditionally and be so completely present for its, its just its presence, doing what it can to alleviate the suffering, but still, you know, there be no con- conditionality for that compassion. Just loving the loving the child, caring for the pain of the child. Another child older, you know, perhaps just coming into their own uh, in accomplishments, finding joy in their social group or in the music that they love to listen to or play or um, dance and athletics or uh, whatever they're beginning to do, independent of the family. And, um, and the parent takes joy in these successes, celebrates you know, loves that their child is, uh, is feeling this kind of happiness from their own accomplishments, from their own efforts, empathic joy. Fourth child is ready to leave home. They've, uh, they've grown up, the parents have cared for them. They still feel metta, of course, for their own child. They feel uh, compassion when they're suffering, feel empathetic joy when, they're, when they uh, are winning <coughs> awards or finding happiness in relationships and work and life and so forth. But it's time for them to walk their own path. And so when that happens, you know, traditionally it's when they leave for uh, after school, after high school, and they leave home. These days, it might be a little later than that, maybe after college or after a few years of work or, you know, they may be 35 or 40 before they finally leave home. (laughs) But the principle is still the same. It's uh, letting the person walk their path, that that equanimity, things as they are. That That child now meets their successes and... and, um, uh, challenges, meets their joys and their sorrows according to their own karma, according to their lives. And there's a kind of letting go in that and an acceptance of that. That's equanimity. Last September, I was... Um, doing a self-retreat in a cottage on the Bay of Bengal in in Burma. Two or three times a day, there'd be a squall come in, just a hard rain sweep in. The the ocean then was 
quite still in the afternoon. And just all these raindrops would pound down on the sea. And you'd see all these ripples, you know, going out. And at first it just looked like total chaos. And there was a little shore break too. So waves, you know, foamy waves would rush up on the shore and wash the sand away. But walking along, you know, walking along the beach or sitting up on a little cliff, watching the water, after a while, <clears throat> you'd see that all these ripples were like perfect designs of nature. You know, rippling out and interconnecting with all the other little circles in this endless pattern, endless lawful order of nature. And likewise, the, wa the foamy whitewash up on the sandy shore, you know, it would back off for a while. And then these perfect sand designs, sculpted, it looked like, you know, an artist had just been there creating all of that, you know, until the next wave. It looked like chaos for a while, but then perfect order would appear. Compare this image to now the power of, you know, cause and effect. What happens when we intentionally put forth a thought or a word or an action motivated by pure metta or compassion, empathetic joy or equanimity. What does that ripple do? Where does it go? You're followed by more thoughts with that in pure intention or speech or actions. If our life is shaped more and more by these energies. What happens? You know, what goes out? This is the teachings of the Dhamma. Included in that is the, the power of actions and consequences. A single act can have consequences that are immeasurable, sometimes never known. Why do sometimes we seemingly have a chance meeting with someone, you know, and something tremendously good happens out of that meeting. Some great project that helps people or some, you know, really loving friendship or relationship or some turning point in um, a circumstance that was formerly bad, difficult, challenging and now toward the good, toward the healing. How does that happen? We can't really see the process. They're like all these ripples going out. And they seem like chaos at first, but then there's a sense of some design to it, some lawfulness. The Dhamma, one of the meanings is lawfulness, lawful order, nature. Two communities came together a few years ago um, that had been separated for centuries, maybe a thousand years or more, and thousands of miles of ocean. 
somewhere along the line, uh, they had met before. And I'm talking about the uh, Polynesian navigators, particularly the uh, Hawaiian, Native Hawaiians, and Alaskan Natives. There's all the evidence to show uh, that they had met before and traded before, traded knowledge and traded foods and seeds and whatnot. The dates and the precise story is, is not known, may not be known. It's interesting to speculate, because now through genetic archaeology, it's known that the, uh, that's what are now Polynesians and Hawaiians came from the areas between Southeast Asia and the Chinese coast off Taiwan and Taiwan down south through uh, Indonesia and then to the east through Micronesia and then off into the Pacific Ocean, the Cook Islands, Society Islands, Tahiti, Marquesas, and then 2,000 years ago north to Hawaii and uh, a thousand years ago south to New Zealand, the Maoris. Native Alaskans, where did they come from? They came from similar areas and walked or sailed along the coast or walked across the Bering Straits from Siberia uh, and settled so many thousands of years ago. So 25 years ago, the Native Hawaiian uh, community that became interested in their history and their ancestry rebuilt a replication of the traditional double hull sailing canoe. Those were also chance actions, you know, raindrop ripples in the ocean. They thought it was just an experiment, a one-time thing. But now, 27, 28 years later, and uh, this single boat, the first boat they built, the Hokalea, sailed over 110,000 nautical miles of the Pacific Ocean. And it uh, has reawoken uh, a cultural, spiritual renaissance in all of Polynesia. And now there's a few dozen double-hull sailing canoes sailing without any instruments, with no compass or sextant or all actually reading chaos, reading turbulent systems. That is the currents of the sea, wind patterns, migration of birds, cloud formations, all the ways in which nature reveals its secret order. Because nature too is part of Dhamma. And it can reveal its, uh, reveal its, its laws if one pays attention with all the senses. And so the old navigators uh, knew how to do, do this. And a few friends who were actually high school friends of mine took it upon themselves to initiate these early journeys. And at one point they decided they would build a second canoe with all indigenous materials from, from the islands of Hawaii. But the trees they looked for, the hardwood koa, um, were diseased, too old, or mostly they had all been cut down in the last century uh, by the white people coming to 
colonize. So to make a long story short, they went and visited the native Alaskans and looked at their trees that they had. I think it's cedar. And uh, they had 400-year-old trees, huge trees. One tree alone could make two very long hull hulls for the double-hull sailing canoes. And Nainoa, who uh, was the first Hawaiian navigator to learn the art from a, a Micronesian master and uh, uh, a longtime family friend, he asked the, the, the leader of this tribe, Judson, he said, well, how much would this tree cost? And Judson said, looked him in the eyes and said, um, never ask how much a gift costs and never give it back. And I know was stunned and felt at first, you know, unable to accept a gift of such, such proportions and such cost. These people had been there for thousands of years. So he said he couldn't accept it. And he and other members of the uh, Polynesian Voyaging Society, they went home and spoke to their kupuna, their elders, who, and one, one who said that, um, that the health of a culture depends on the health of a, their environment. The health of a culture depends on the health of their environment. So what they did was plant 11,000 koa trees up near Volcano on the Big Island. And when they completed that, some nine months later, they went back to Alaska and asked Judson if they could accept this gift now, very ceremoniously, and with a lot of knowledge that of their past connection and intermingling of their ancestry, and that they uh, surely did good acts together thousands of years ago, that this, that this gift was really somehow uh, in reciprocity for something they had received at one time, perhaps, from the Hawaiians. This was the attitude. They took it, went home, built community around building the canoe years later, um, they, um, the, they brought this new ship, this new sailing canoe called Hawaiiloa, sailed up the coast of the United, western coast of the United States. And then uh, from Canada, uh, a native Hawaiian uh, friend of mine, her father towed the canoe up near Alaska, and then they sailed the last miles into the harbor, into this poor village of simple wooden huts to thank them in person for that gift. And they went into a hut, uh, a blanket was laid out, some young girl came with a, a fistful of $100 bills, put it on the blanket as a gift again to these Hawaiians, were relatively far more wealthy than, than these villagers in, um, in Alaska, these Native American Alaskan villagers. And again, Nainoa was hesitant to accept the gift. And Judson said, 
my dear young man, to Nainoa, our people measure wealth by their generosity, not by how much they have. 12,000 years we have been a sustainable culture because this is how we've lived. They had been there since the last ice age. So please accept this gift. Go home, continue creating community and try to recreate that sustainable culture that Polynesians once had. The Brahma Viharas as our home, as the foundation of our being, a lot of the work is the rediscovery of lost and forgotten or hidden parts of ourselves. As Michelle was saying last night that this is a purification process, this is a practice, and it would not be working if we were not facing the opposites of metta in anger, in fear, in resentment, in hatred, in feelings of violence or aggression. We would not be getting in there to the most pure metta if we weren't dealing with feelings or thoughts of cruelty and control and manipulation. We, we could not get to to compassion, or if we were drowning in our feelings of loss and grief and sorrow. You know, though that's called a masquerade of compassion. It looks like it, but it's not really. In the same way, attached love or conditional love, love that depends on something else, on return, looks like love, looks like metta, but it's a different kind of love, a love types of love we all know and enjoy, rightly so, but it's not the love of metta, and wisdom helps discern the difference. And to know the nature between a more uh, glib or surface uh, attached joy and that deep empathic resonance that is true empathetic joy that celebrates others' successes and happiness and is the opposite of comparing, of jealousy, of envy. And I mentioned already the difference between indifference, not caring, disconnection, and the genuine connection of upeka, equanimity. It's opposite. You know, we have to face all the time, every day, the reactivity of the mind. The mind that wants, the mind that reject, rejects. What, um, it, what the mind clings to because it's pleasant, what we repress, push away because it's unpleasant. The reactive mind keeps us so busy and so distracted that there's just only a few moments that we may be free of that until we start doing these practices and being more mindful. And then we see how restful it is we see how much energy we, we exert 
to keep that reactive mind going and how much energy is regained, released when we don't, when we're not reactive. When we learn to rest in this unconditional love and compassion, joy, in the serene, wide acceptance of equanimity, that wide mind and heart. Moments outside of fear and desire we will find in this practice. Even when we find ourselves in life connected to the most difficult stuff that we have to face, greatest challenges in life. An idealistic example, you know, of world leadership motivated by these immeasurables, these four spiritual emotions, is Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel laureate democracy leader in Burma, who at the age of 43, you know, having been living a very different life in the West with her English husband and two sons who were just entering their teenage years. At the age of 43, 15 years, 14 or 15 years ago, went home when her mom was dying. Destiny had it, you know, again, all the ripples, all the interconnecting forces, chance meetings that really are not by chance. She was there when the student democracy movement began and she immediately stepped into the role of one of the most powerful leaders this planet has ever seen, motivated entirely by love, compassion, joy, and equanimity and wisdom. As her father's daughter, uh, her father is the hero of Burma, the icon, uh, liberator of Burma from colonial rule, uh, who was assassinated by rivals when she was only two years old. So her kama uh, was to come back. You know, unexpectedly, unplanned, it just fell into place. There she was. And she's the real thing. She's a very close and dear personal friend of mine. She's the real thing. And also not perfect. Real thing because she's also very human. She gets angry. She gets lonely. She gets frustrated. But she works hard every day at not objectifying, not making the regime generals the enemy, the other. But seeing rather, you know, where there's ignorance, where there's greed, where there's control, where there's lack of compassion, and stands up to that fearlessly. Where does she get her fearlessness? From these Brahma Viharas. She practices them every day. And from mindfulness practice, she's never done a retreat. She says she won't do a retreat till the work of democracy 
uh, is complete and comes to Burma. She's made that promise uh, to her teacher, Saira Upandita. And, uh, and even I asked her once, well, why don't you just go into retreat like Gandhi did? That might have a real effect. She said, no, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to do that. She said, just this morning, a diplomat said, well, how can you stand up to these generals? They're, you know, they're, they're, they don't care. They're not sensitive. And there's so much might, you know. And she said, uh, and he's the diplomat said, you know, you must really be afraid to face them down. And she said, how can I be afraid of what's right? Why would I be afraid of what's right? So she draws on this energy of fearlessness from her love of the people, from up-leveling the narrow pettiness of greed and control and doing the work because it's right for 50 million people. what I would call enlightened leadership. When the, when the Buddha taught these immeasurables, as I've said, he just said, send that out. Send out unconditional love and compassion, joy, equanimity, everywhere to all beings. But we practice with a certain form that develop over time with um, uh, the commentaries to help us in the generation of these qualities. The form is flexible. The form is meant to be used in a real flexible way, not a fixed way. It can be customized for every individual. It need not even go in the order that it goes. One person <coughs> said to me today, you know, it's easier for me if I start with all beings than if I just start with myself. And I said, that's fine. Start with all beings. And then when you really feel the strength of that metta, bring it home. Bring it to yourself. Another person said, you know, sometimes that focus on herself and benefactor, the the container of that, the shelter of that, is very powerful and really works. But then sometimes she needs to feel that she can open up to the space around her in a wider way. I said, good. Do it that way. The, the meditative goal is metta, you know, not following any linear order. The, the form is all skillful means. It's all used to be shaped around how to allow the metta to reemerge within us. We all have it, quite naturally. Michelle gave a story last night of her great niece. You know, I love myself. Niece. What's her name? Brenna. I love myself. I mean, we've all seen that unbridled uh, beauty of passion and joy and connection with life. The last few years, um, as Michelle mentioned last night, it's uh, been really difficult for a lot of people, including us. A lot of 
family and friends, deaths and changes in relationship, reconfiguration of form and um, uh, rethinking the amount of work we do in traveling and teaching and projects and centers and um, you know we have projects in Burma, uh, project for a center in Hawaii and uh, things like that sometimes you know, we only have so much energy and so much room. So uh, I, st I stopped teaching for the last year and a half. This is, uh, this is the first, actually last week I taught a retreat in Canada. This is the second retreat I've taught in a year and a half. So about a, two years ago, I, uh, when I first took off, I went to uh, the Shan State mountains in upper Burma. It was hot season and found a, a place to practice. Uh, and it was a very unconventional retreat because I'd just been going through a lot. Uh, unconventional in that I didn't follow any particular order. And, uh, uh, and really allowed my emotional life to come out. Uh, I started off with picking up where my f grieving left off with my dad dying uh, in 1996. And two weeks later, I, I was teaching again and within a very short period of time had five or six different projects going at once. You know, all around the, the Dhamma, all really good things. Uh, but the grieving didn't get complete, so I started with that. Then it's very profound, kind of calling on my father, calling on my ancestry, calling on my lineage, you know, uh, for for support and for help. I had this poignant memory of when I was 11 years old, and it was it was like Brenna. I really felt that complete sense of love, felt completely within myself and connected to everything, everything around me. I remember exactly where I was, you know, just near the beach and under coconut trees and I had had a, a, a really great feeling of beauty in my life. And I saw around me older people teens and young adults and older adults who didn't seem to have that sense of connection, who didn't seem to feel that unfettered joy, that unfurled heart of, of just being. So I, I spoke to my future self. I said, don't ever forget this feeling. And I said, I'm 11 years old. Remember this, I'm 11 years old. Don't ever forget this feeling. So 45 years later, I heard that voice, you know, and I saw myself. And so the questions came up. What have I forgotten? What have I left behind? You know, when we make choices in our lives, we, it, everything comes at a price. With Aung San, Aung San Suu Kyi, she only saw her husband three or four times briefly. 
in the 14 years she's been there, was unable to see him when he died two years ago. The regime was trying to force her to go back to England so they wouldn't let her back in. She didn't see her teenagers grow up. Now they're in their 20s, Kim and Alexander. One of them has a baby and has been able to go back once to show his mom her, grand, her grandson. For 43 years before that, you know, she had a certain life. And then events changed. So I asked myself, you know, the pain I'm experiencing and the, the suffering I'm feeling, is there something I need to reclaim? I'm suggesting that this work of, of um, breaking down the barriers that Michelle spoke of last night unravels a lot of our old areas of contraction, tension, folds, how we've used certain kinds of boundaries to protect our hearts from things we did leave behind. You know, certain qualities, certain passions, certain things that we, when we chose to take one path, you know, we might have slowly forgotten or lost a thread with another part of ourselves. So when we do this work, the pain, the very pain that we sometimes feel unfurls a tremendous release of energy and passion and sense of connection. We feel again 11 years old or six years old or, or whatever. We feel a connection with life that we had forgotten or part of it. We feel a, a rec reclamation of aspects of our heart, our psyche, our bodies that we had left behind and buried. And so as not to feel the pain of that covered with any number of protective measures, fear, aversion, intellectualization, numbing out, projection, fantasy, resistance. All these words that we're learning in the meditation process have actually helped defend us against feeling pain. Well, now in our practice, we're learning to set aside, to understand these protective measures, these survival strat strategy, strategies, replace them with more powerful ones, metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And see what is there. That tremendous release of energy that reconnects us with parts of ourselves left behind, number one. Number two, that it can be applied to the work of awakening. That can su sustain and increase our capacity to think, born of metta, to speak, born of metta and compassion and equanimity, to act with our bodies, born of the motivation of compassion, equanimity, love, and so forth. And to apply this immense generation of energy from these spiritual emotions toward awareness and insight. 
towards our awakening. I'd like to close the poem by Mary Oliver. It's reflecting again that on the openness of metta and its ability to transform our deepest desire, transform the nature of fear and anger, all into openness, into connection. And the care, the softness towards suffering, towards painful experience, to let go our patterns of control because of our fear of suffering. Karuna, compassion. To allow joy, the unfettered passion and appreciation of life, relinquishing, comparing. And the insight that arises from that balance beyond preference and passivity. Mind of, of equanimity. This is called The River, about coming home. Mary Oliver. Just because I was born precisely here or there in some cold city or other, don't think I don't remember how I came along like a grain carried by the flood on one of the weedy threads that pour toward a muddy lightning, surging east past monkeys and parrots, past trees with their branches in the clouds, until I was spilled forth and slept under the blue lung of the Caribbean. Nobody told me this, but little by little the smell of mud and leaves returned to me, and in dreams I began to turn to sense the current. Do dreams lie? Once I was a fish crying for my sisters in the sprawling crossroads of the delta. Once among the reeds I found a boat as thin and lonely as a young tree. Nearby, the forest sizzled with the afternoon rain. Home, I said. In every language there's a word for it in the body itself, climbing those walls of white thunder past those green temples. There is also a word for it. I said, home. Sit for a moment. In every language, there's a word for it. In the body itself, climbing those walls of white thunder, past those green temples, there's also a word for it. I said, home.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.